This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Kush Jumbo is a British actress, although if you only know her from the hit series The Good Wife and its spin-off The Good Fight, you would be forgiven for thinking she was American. Her portrayal of the sharp-talking lawyer Luca Quinn has won Jumbo a legion of fans and made her a star. But it all started in South London, where she grew up the second of six children and was forever being told she was an excellent mimic. She took dance classes from the age of three. Then Jumbo heard about the Brit School for Performing Arts on Blue Peter and persuaded her parents to send her there. Later, she graduated with a first from the Central School of Speech and Drama, was nominated for an Olivier Award for her work on stage and wrote and starred in a one-woman play about the jazz singer Josephine Baker to rave reviews. She took this play off-Broadway in 2015 It was in this role that she was spotted for the part of Luca by the Good Wife creators. And the rest is history. That will give you some idea of both her tenacity and her talent. These days, she splits her time between America, where she lives with her tech developer husband and their one-year-old son, and the UK, where next year she will be taking on one of the roles of her life, Hamlet at the Young Vic. I have to make myself heard... Jumbo said of acting in 2012. Not just the language, but the feeling has to reach the person all the way in the back seat. Kush Jumbo, welcome to How to Fail. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that was the weirdest feeling, was it? People find it quite odd. <laughs> Do you know, it's it's really lovely hearing somebody say lovely things about you that are 
true, but even just saying that, just now saying the word true, I feel embarrassed that I feel lovely about you saying lovely things about me. We're so messed up. (laughs) So messed up, but you deserve it all. And actually, the quote that I used at the end of the introduction comes from the interview that I did with you. Oh my goodness. Way back in 2012, when you were just breaking out. And I remember that interview so vividly because you were so brilliant. (laughs) I, I have such a strong memory of you doing that interview with me. It was probably like the first time that I'd been part of a big newspaper feature. And you were the first journalist that I remember meeting who didn't ask me black questions. Oh. And I remember that so vividly, and I've talked to people about it since, that you were so interested in the process of Julius Caesar and what we were doing, how we were making it, and me as a person. But I'd never not felt slightly uncomfortable in an interview when somebody started talking about me and it was just so fun we had so much fun and when it came out everybody that like read it was so proud of me and it was so it felt like a really good representation of who I was like a true one so thanks for that that was nice I'm so glad you said that (laughs) no thank you for saying that and also it's given me a sense of sort of possessiveness like a kind of auntly pride when I've seen you go on to do all these (laughs) magnificent things and seen you in the when you popped up in the good wife I was like oh my god <laughs> it's good. I know her. Yeah, you're one of my gate. You're one of my gatekeepers. Oh well, thank you. I'd like to take credit for your yeah, entire career. No, I was talking to someone the other day and talking about how it's really strange how you know you can go through your life, especially in the creative industry or in your, you know, in yours as well. I think like really sometimes it's fifty percent what you do, but the other half of the time it's the way that people behave that you come into contact with you know whether they're your mentor or they're somebody who gives you an opportunity or my whole career is made up of people taking a chance on me or listening to me and then me having the opportunity to do things because of that Mm. and so you're one of those people Thank you. That's such a lovely thing to say. What, what if you shown up in a really bad mood that day? I know. Or what if I'd been a total bitch? That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before this becomes a mutual love fest, yeah. um, tell us about, because I love this anecdote, about how you were found by the Good Wife creators. What exactly happened? Oh my goodness. Okay, so I was in New York doing Josephine and I, which was this show that I wrote about Josephine Baker, which had transferred from the Bush Theatre in London to the Public Theatre, which is basically like the National of New York. And so it's a building with lots of theatres in it. Just to put it into perspective, when I was opening Josephine in one theatre in that building. The theatre opposite me was doing the first preview of Hamilton. Oh, wow. Which I went to. Yeah. And tickets were $20. A chorus line started there and, you know, a whole bunch of... It's it's a new writing building. It's a really creative space. And I was really proud to be there performing in that building. So it was directed by Phila Lloyd and she had directed Mamma Mia! the movie. And part of her cast of the movie was Christine Baranski, who I'm a huge fan of. Me too. And <laughs> Philida knew that I'd always been obsessed with The Good Wife as well. Like, I'm a big Good Wife fan. I've been watching it for years, and I just love the show. You know, because you're, when you're in New York and you do a show, it's a very normal thing, which is not the same here, that very famous people come to congratulate you after the show, even when you don't know them. Whereas here, you know, unless you know somebody famous, they would just be like, it would be impolite for me to bother them now. So every night, someone incredibly famous would be coming to knock on little old my door and I'd have to kind of wipe sweat away and shake their hands and try not to behave like I was completely imploding with this, what, what is happening in my life. And one night came this knock at the door 
and it was Christine Baranski. And she came floating into my room. I swear she was on wheels. She glided across the floor, like her feet didn't touch the floor. And she was like, darling, that was a wonderful show. And I just, you're so talented. And I, I just think you're fabulous. And I just, I thought she was amazing. And I said, I love you. I'm a big fan of yours, of all your work, your stage work. I love you on The Good Wife. And that was all I said. Then a few days later, someone came to say that two people called Robert and Michelle King had been in that night and they wanted to come and meet me. Now, I know who Robert and Michelle King are because I love The Good Wife and I knew they were this husband and wife team that had written that show and run that show. So I was so thrilled that they'd come. Not because I thought it'd be on the show, just because I thought, you know, it'd be really amazing. And they came backstage. They're the cutest, most intelligent, wonderful couple and they came back and they loved the show and they told me they loved the show and they told me all about the good wife and how they film in New York and they had all these new parts coming up and I thought they were just giving me an inside track to the show I thought they were just being like you're a fan you know (laughs) did you know that we're looking for some new and I was like thank you for coming and it was just if I died that night I would have been happy like it was just a great night that was on Saturday night and then Monday morning they offered me a job oh my goodness and I couldn't believe it Within a couple of months, I was on that set doing all my scenes with Juliana Margulies and having a wonderful time, but also being terrified of somebody showing up and going, hey, you, you, you from Lewisham, you're not meant to be here. Get back on the plane. And doing an American accent in front of all of those people and meeting incredibly famous actors and trying to like learn everything I could and cram everything in my mind. And also I was only signed up for three episodes to start with of the 22. I was meant to do three episodes and go home. And I stayed for three. And then they're like, can you stay for longer and longer and longer? And then before I knew it, I'd done the whole season and all of my stuff was with Jules. It was a mind-blowing time. I couldn't believe what was happening to me. And I read somewhere that you compare, because a lot of the dialogue is very legal heavy yeah (laughs) and you are so phenomenal at standing up in court and having this presence as a lawyer yeah but I read somewhere that you compared the sort of technical aspect of that language to learning Shakespeare you have to like encode it absolutely which is one of the reasons why and they can do this because they have you know they shoot in New York they cast so many theatre actors on that show that a lot of them are Broadway theatre trained actors because the jargon and the language is not only complicated, but being a litigator is a performance Mm. in itself. And I knew nothing about law when I started the show, but we have law experts and we have people who advise us on how to behave physically in each court because we might be in federal court, supreme court, family court, civil court, and you might be addressing the judge. In this court, you don't address the judge, you address the jury. In this court, you don't worry about them, you intimidate the others in this court. And I love all of that stuff, because that's all information I can put into my body to perform in court. And court often is long hours, long dialogue, a lot to remember, long takes, but I just fucking love it. And I only really get that feeling doing Shakespeare. And what's Christine like? Bloody amazing. We call her Queen Baranski. (laughs) She's the best. She's just the best. And my experience, I've been so lucky to be able to learn under and watch Christine and Juliana both, two phenomenal, not only women and actresses, but business people and leaders. Mm. I think a lot of the time now, the way our industry works, people believe that if they are 
the lead or number one, it's mostly about being paid the most money and people forget how to be leaders. And sometimes being number one is about leading everybody else, showing everybody else what the bar is, how to behave, what's the etiquette. So polite, so on time, always know their stuff, know everybody's names, you know, from the bottom to the top. And I watch them and I have watched them and I think, yeah, that's how you, that's how you lead. Like that's really how you become a great person. Love hearing that. I could actually make this entire podcast just about the good wife and the I good know. fight. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to come Spin back off. and we'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, your first failure, you describe as a failure to be perfect. And it comes from your family and your upbringing. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I'm the second of six children. My parents and we, we all grew up in South London. I'm kind of completely London born and bred, really. We moved around a lot. And my parents, who are still together now and are the best, love me so much, really proud of what I've achieved. They, like a lot of people's parents, I think, of my generation, were very young when they had us. When my mum was my age, I think she had five kids. Wow. And, um, you know, they both always worked really hard. But with being a young parent, as many people will identify with, comes some challenges in terms of what you know versus what your kids need. And also maybe what you were taught as a kid. They both had difficult upbringings themselves. So as a family unit, we were a big team and we were brought up to kind of look after each other and help with the running of the jumbo tribe, as we used to call it, because there really kind of was just us. We didn't really have any extended family. And being number two of six, what that means is that you also have to become a parent. Your deputy, if one of the parents is always working and the other one's trying to run it all, myself and my big sister, we spent a large proportion of our childhood helping to raise the other kids, which you don't think anything of at the time because that's just what you know. But we had that approach to everything we did. My dad is Nigerian and loves education and loves school and wasn't given the opportunity to go to school past a very young age and brought up a lot of children himself. So he was always fastidious about school, about your approach to school and working the hardest you could. He used to send us off every morning and say, work hard, ask questions. Always his two things, that you would work the hardest you possibly could, but you would even always question the teacher to make sure, you know, is there something I'm not learning? And that's a really good work ethic to give to your children. But I definitely have always felt a sense of fear that if I do not achieve to the highest level in everything, everything will not be okay. And there's a chance that life will disintegrate should I not achieve. Mm. And that could be at school, but that could be to do with anything that might happen with my siblings that is a negative because they've all struggled in their own ways. When there's so many of you, you know, you're going to have a couple that struggle with life in general. And I have felt like those things have been my failings. What did I do wrong that sister four or brother three is struggling? What can I do to fix it? And I've taken quite a lot of that on. And I guess for quite a few years, really until recently, I think, I I can only describe it as feeling like the world's going to end if I don't succeed. And so 
because of that, this is probably the worst job I could have gone into. <laughs> It sounds like so much stress to be under at such a young age. Was part of it, because I know your father was an asylum seeker, wasn't he? Well, actually, he came over illegally, I guess. He used someone else's passport and came over. He was very young. And when he met my mum, they actually went and handed themselves in and kind of said, look, we're in love, we want to be together, and he's not legal, what are we going to do? And eventually he got his his British passport. And I don't know, I guess he was really fixated upon the idea of us doing well and of us taking advantage of all the things that he didn't have. I think that is a classic immigrant parent mentality. And my mum's from a very working-class background and she's from Yorkshire, and the combination of the two of that, it's just a lot... But I think a lot of people would identify with that who have parents that are first generation because they come here and they're like, wow, your schools are free. If I'd had a free school, the things I could have done, the things I could have achieved. So, yeah, it might have come a bit from that. The other thing that I find interesting is that your father chose to stay at home. So at that time, the gender roles were reversed and your mother went out to work. Yeah. Do you think that that has had an impact on you and how you see the world? Yeah, I definitely think that had an impact in positive ways. Although he was very strict and ran everything in an almost army-like way and everybody helped out with everything and we had rotors for everything. My mum is a mental health nurse and she would work really long hours and often weekends as well. And on her side, that didn't take away from any of the time that she spent with us when she wasn't at work. I only have memories of my mum staying up with me till midnight to make a hat for the hat competition or to find a poem to enter into a poetry contest or helping me to stick bits of bath crystals onto an empty egg that we'd blown the egg out of for the egg competition at school. Now thinking back and realising that she'd just done a night and a day and was probably going back onto a night. You know, she never had time to have her nails done or her hair done. That wasn't like her thing. But she found time where there was no time and took me to my dance classes and would help me cut auditions out of the paper. And so she had all this time. And my dad was a really maternal person. He's very Nigerian alpha male, but he also was the washing and the cooking and the cleaning and the pat lunches and the organising and the definitely heart and soul of the party. Big storyteller, big music person. And so I guess my perception of men, probably what I expect of them has always been quite high. And yet you also look for something a little different because I probably also was hankering after something that was really traditional. Dad goes to work, mum stays at home. Why do we have to be such a weird family kind of thing? But I think there are some positives in that, in that I don't know a world where both your parents aren't contributing. And I don't know a world where a man doesn't know how to do the washing up. And I don't know a world where mum doesn't always have time. But I guess all of that can be positive and negative because then you're basically expecting everything. And that can put you under a lot of pressure, I guess. And do you think, because it does sound like a lot of responsibility at a very young age, the second eldest of six, and expected to be, as you put it, a deputy in the family... Do you think that you were yearning after more play? And is that why you think you got into acting and performing arts? Well, Elizabeth, my (laughs) therapist recently told me, definitely. It's something that I've come to terms with a lot in the last five years. I am most definitely an actor because I get to be a child. I can pretend to be many people... At work, people are usually laying out my clothes for me, telling me what what makeup I have to wear, making all these decisions that get taken out of my hands and all I have to concentrate on is playing, which I'm really good at. I know for a fact that I had to put some of that away, quite a lot of that away, 
when I was younger because there there wasn't time and that a lot was expected. But at the same time, I channeled all of those feelings into being a performer at such a young age that I also think, gosh, would I be who I was if I hadn't have done that? Because it was my escape. I can't remember a time where I haven't felt more comfortable on stage looking out into the dark than being off stage. I still feel more comfortable on stage than I do off stage. And what do your other siblings do? Are any of them performers? No. So you're the unicorn. (laughs) I am the unicorn. It happens from time to time, I think. I was dropped off by Fred and Ginger on their doorstep and they do not know where I came from. I mean, we were a really fun, gregarious, kind of loud family. But I'm the only one that decided to make it anything and I was directing them all from a very young age. I was doing shows at the house, charging my mum and dad to come into the living room, charging them for food at the interval. You know, and I was taking scripts to school, having written out Shakespeare from like a complete works of Shakespeare. I was trying to get my, why won't anybody concentrate in this rehearsal when I was seven and everyone just wants to play Kiss Chase, but I want to do Romeo and Juliet. I don't know. I guess sometimes it just is there. And are they very much keeping your feet on the ground? Because (laughs) you're there, you're basically effectively like a Hollywood star. I mean, I know that you film in New York, but you haven't changed it from my perspective since I interviewed you all those years ago. That's good. And are your family good at reminding you of that? Perhaps you don't need it. I actually would say that, yes, partly my family are. Actually, I would say more my friends I have the same group of friends that have been my friends since the Brit school, so it's coming on 20 years, and none of them have gone into performing, but they've all become really successful people, and they remind me of who I am and where I came from, and I would literally die without them, even though I would say I'm pretty shit friend most of the time at the moment because I'm either away or I'm terrible at getting back to them on time, and they never desert me. They're always checking in, making sure I'm okay, because they know what the lifestyle is like. They're used to it now. And when we get back together, it's like nothing's ever changed. My family do that too. But the thing about your family is they're this kind of like enforced thing that you can't escape. And sometimes that can feel like it's keeping your feet on the ground. And sometimes that can feel like it's holding you back. Because they come with a lot of baggage that you have to deal with. Whereas your friends, you chose them. They chose you. You've grown together. There's something really joyous in those relationships and I just every day I'm just so grateful to still have those friendships and I think if I had to luck a knob end they would tell me straight away so I don't I don't think I'd get away with it (laughs) we're living in an era of information overload we've more knowledge than ever before But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. 
So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. We're talking of your friends from the Brit School, none of whom is a performer, is interesting because it brings us on to your second failure, which you describe as your failure to launch. Because, as I said in the introduction, you graduated from drama school with a first. And then what happened? I got an agent and I started my my life as an actor. And I guess I had gone to drama school from the Brit School with this, like, I'm ready for drama school, I'm going to be a star. And I found drama school really challenging. I was very young to go there. I was 17 when I started. And I found it to be a shock to my system. It was nothing like the Brit School. It wasn't warm, wasn't friendly. It was very judgmental. Lots of people there that had lived more life than me and were a lot wealthier than me. And so I didn't feel like I fit in there. But I loved doing the work and I learned a lot. So I was ready. I was left. I had my tools. I was ready. And I, I didn't expect it to just happen, but I expected something to happen. And I began to work, but I consistently did two or three years, four years of work that were very low level theatre, low-level television, jobbing stuff, the stuff that you do in the beginning. And I was getting next to no satisfaction from it. And that was a combination of having an agent that couldn't get me in the right rooms to be seen to get the kind of more interesting stuff. And also being in in a world at the time that then, which is not that long ago, it's only like coming up 15 years ago, I graduated, but people were still saying things to you in, in auditions like you're really urban and urban is really in right now. And that seems bonkers that that could have been said. But that's the kind of things people would say to me. And I was consistently put up for girl from council estate, single mother, trainee nurse, trainee receptionist. It was consistently these weird parts that I didn't feel like were real parts. And there was nobody that looked like me playing leads definitely on television maybe in a couple of soaps and it was a struggle on stage and if you were there it was like it was years and years and years away so I began to get super frustrated with the state of my existence because by then as a young jobbing actor living in London where the rent is unbelievable and the minimum wage is nothing although I have a first in acting and a degree As a young actor, you can't take a full-time job because you need to be available for auditions. So the only jobs that you can do are temporary minimum wage jobs. So you're doing two or three of them just to make the rent. And then in between that, you're auditioning. And you don't have enough money. If you're lucky enough maybe to have parents to help you or someone to help you, then fine, good for you. But most people don't have excess cash to then go to the theatre to make themselves feel good on the weekend or even go out for a meal because any extra bit of money they have is being channeled into, for example, spending £100 to go to Manchester for an audition, spending money to go to Scotland for an audition. Travelling into London from South London for the day to go to an audition is like 20 quid. And you're so committed to what you're trying to do and yet you're not getting through any doors. And then on top of that, you're not living yeah. So you start to get depressed. And I know that I know now looking back how common this is and probably how much harder it is now because everything's gone up, rent's gone up, everything's gone up. And so I, for the first time in my life, got super depressed. 
And the magic that had existed for me since I was maybe three or four years old about being in this business, because this is all I'd ever wanted to do, began to kind of disintegrate. It was like this horrible reality check that actually what this business was about was, do you have enough money to hang in there? Do you look like what we want? We don't care about what you can do. Do you look like what we want? You're not this, you're not this. Mostly you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. All the things that you cannot change about yourself. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I guess it was just this overwhelming feeling of hopelessness, which was hard for me because, as I said before, I guess my big joy in existing had come from being a performer. And now someone was like taking it from me. Yeah, someone was saying you weren't worthy of it. Yeah, So I guess I started to slowly, slowly, it just began to become clear to me that then what was the point? And how old were you when this was happening? 23, 24. I moved back home. I had a big breakup with a terrible boyfriend and I moved back home. And I mean, there's nothing bloody worse. I don't think you've ever done it, but moving back home. Yeah, after my divorce. Oh my God. Yeah, You know what I'm talking about. It just fucking intensifies your failure. And you have to revisit who you were when you were with them and what you did wrong to kind of end up back there. That sounds really terrible because you're lucky to have a place to go. But I was living in my parents' attic room and I began to, like, visualise a lot every day what it would be like to kill myself in the attic room, how I would do it, what I would do. Not in a kind of... It's hard to describe, I guess, because... Now, having gone through it and talked to people about it and learnt more about suicidal thoughts, it's amazing what the brain does to give you warnings that it's requiring some assistance. But depending on what kind of person you are, and I'm a super visual person, it will tell you in different ways. And I remember talking to a counsellor a few years after, which was a second or third counsellor that head was talking to me about, your brain is amazing, your brain gives you visualisations as a kind of get out, like a, well, you visualised it now, so you don't have to do it. You're visualising it because you want it to be quiet, but you don't want to be gone. You don't want to upset anybody. It's just really noisy in there. And that's exactly how I felt. It was very loud in my head, consistently, every day, all day. And the only thing I had to look forward to was going to work and do jobs where people treated you like crap and then come home and go to sleep and then go to work. You don't think about how anybody's going to feel if you do it or how it will affect anyone or you just think about it being quiet when you're not sleeping and it's so noisy. And then one particular day I woke up and I thought, I'm going to go to the doctor today because I'm feeling very on the edge. So I did, went to the doctor and they were great and I started the process of looking into it then. It feels crazy to talk to you about it now and I've actually never talked about it out loud I can't thank you enough for talking about it yeah it's so important and I think the way you've explained it just there because so many people don't understand suicide and the way that you've explained it as stopping the noise makes so much sense I'm so sorry you went through that yeah no thank you I'm really one of the lucky ones I had At the time, you know, the NHS were great and I talked to my family, I talked to my friends and gradually, gradually, you know, things moved in a different direction. And here's the weird thing is that 
that's the state I was in. And I kind of went home and I began the processes of the things I was being encouraged to do, one of which was to get a pet. (laughs) And that's how I got my miniature poodle, Henry, who I adopted from another actress. And that was the first thing I did, which was designed to get me out of my own head and have a purpose. First and best thing I ever did, Henry the Poodle, who's living his best life in New York right now. And then from there, that was around the time that I was like, okay, right, I can be a more useful person. I'm not gonna kill myself because I can't be an actress. Kush, Jumbo, don't be so ridiculous. This is ridiculous. There are other things you have to give. You can do other things. So I applied to do a PGCE course at Greenwich University to start in the September primary school teaching course. I thought, I'm going to be the best damn primary school teacher there is. Yes, I'll live vicariously through my students and they will have to put up with my stories of drama school, but that's what I'll do and it'll be great. And that summer I wrote Josephine. But I feel like I know that I was only able to write Josephine because it needed to be written and it was just coming out of me and it just, I was just writing it. I just wrote it and put it on at the Camden Fringe for like three nights for nobody, for 15 people. Because I thought, why not do something nice to end this chapter on? If you're going to finish acting and this is going to be it, end nice and then go into teaching. And of course, I never went to that PGC course. I guess in a way to put that darkness into creating something. So it's the antidote. You're creating life is literally the antidote to what you're feeling. Oh, sometimes making things. A lot of people have stories of making things and saying, I don't know how this got made. It just came out. And I wonder whether going into such a dark place gave access to something that I hadn't. I'd wanted to write this show for years. And every time I sat down to do it, I felt blocked like I couldn't do it. And this particular time I sat down, I don't know whether it was because I had nothing to lose or nobody was going to judge me. I don't know what it was, but she had all this stuff to say and I had all this stuff to say and it just it just came out so easy. You've got to be revealed in that way. It's difficult to make things if you're hiding. And I guess I had nothing to hide behind at that point. God, I just, that, that is what Oprah would call a teachable moment. Oh, there you go. It's difficult to make things if you're hiding. You have to mentally unclothe yourself. Yeah. You mentioned there that you went through a number of processes to get out of that place. You said the NHS were great. On a practical level, what were those processes? Did you start therapy? I started talking therapy, which, you you know, you only get a short course of um, with the NHS and then you kind of have to find somebody yourself. And and that is, I think, really difficult for a lot of people because that's where you kind of have to go into finding someone private or you might not get the same therapist and it can be an up and down experience. But I did a bit of CBT, I did a bit of talking therapy. I didn't use medication in the end. It wasn't for me, but it is for some people and I think it's brilliant for some people. A lot of it was connected to my first failure in terms of one of my biggest issues was I didn't want to admit that I was struggling because I felt like I'd failed everybody. I thought if I admitted that I was feeling the way I was, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. But what I had to get rid of was the feeling that my parents and my friends and everyone around me was going to say, oh, that's because you failed. Well, we knew you couldn't do it. Because they'd never said that to me. Why I thought they were going to say that to me, I don't know. But it was me. You begin a process of getting to know this additional person that we all have that is probably eight or nine years old and is in all of us. That is your absolute worst critic. And you're not very nice to them and they're not very nice to you. And it's like rewiring 
what those conversations are. I started meditation and mindfulness around that time, which was so helpful for like panicking and thoughts moving in a direction that I didn't want them to. And just accepting that thoughts are there. They're just not me. I'm not, that's not who I am. But I have a very healthy relationship with my own voices now. That sounds mental, but... No, it doesn't at all. A lot of us don't and we ignore them and we only listen to them when they're being negative and they can really be mean and you can really be mean back. So, yeah, it's a long process. And it seems to be based on that idea, as you put it, of existing separately from your thoughts. You are you and your thoughts can be your worst projections of something that isn't really real. That may not even happen. Yeah. And actors can do that a lot because our lives consist of being out of control. You get the call that you're going to have an audition. They tell you when it's going to be. You go, you don't know who you're going to see. Then you get there and they tell you whether you're good enough to come back. And then you wait for a phone call and then they call you and tell you you're good enough to come back. You go back. Then they tell you you've got the job. Then they tell you you're going to start. And then when you're there, they tell you whether you're doing it right or wrong. And then you try stuff, but they tell you whether it's you know good or bad. And then you, you're waiting for a critic to come and tell you whether you're good or bad. No part, there's a lot of parts of that that you're waiting to be told whether you're good enough, okay, right. And eventually that can have a knock-on effect on you and you start to panic about things that haven't even happened yet, including will I ever work again? Which no actor ever loses. Any actor will tell you that, no matter how successful they are. How do I know this is my last job? You said to me that part of the reason you wanted to talk about this is because it isn't discussed in drama school and it's very important for young actors to know. Yeah. So... What piece of advice would you give someone who is experiencing what you experience age 23? I think whether you go to drama school or you're somebody that doesn't go to train and you begin in this career, there needs to be a much bigger conversation about how much of this job revolves around your mental health. It would be just kind of stupid to not address the fact that Quite honestly, what we're doing is dressing up and pretending to be other people and pretending that it's real. That just in a sentence sounds nuts. That's a whole nother level of weird. And then on top of that, you're running this double life of until I can act full time. I've also got to do all the other things everyone else does just to survive alongside this other thing. And you can spend a lot of time running around trying to keep your head above water, but not spending a lot of time kind of checking if your flippers are working. And I think it's just having a check-in with yourself. How are you feeling? And if you do feel like you've left school and, and it's not happening for you, there's many more ways I now know that I could have got out and looked after myself. Some of those would have included just going outside of the house more instead of drinking wine indoors or being with my friends like laughing with my friends in a park, going to a gallery and like looking at art, going anywhere free that's artistic and just feeding yourself, reading books by the river, like taking advantage of where you are and being around people with good energy. Oh my God, that's so important. I feel like that's something I've only just learned oh, me too. in the last year. Me too. I had no idea there were toxic people in existence that wanted to be your friend until I started kind of realising they were there. And you have to break up with them. Yes. Like you would with a boyfriend. How do you do a friendship breakup? Oh, my God. I think it's a nightmare. I'm extremely conflict avoidant. And so, therefore, you end up just sort of letting things slide. But that's really... I'm really confrontational, (laughs) coming from a big family. But I get massive guilt. 
I feel like I should be servicing the friendship perfectly. And so I feel terrible about breaking up a friendship because you think I have all this history with this person. I'm just throwing it all away. But actually, if you met that person today in a pub and you didn't like them, they wouldn't be your friend. And it's who they are now, not who they were in the past. I think that once you clearly state with a toxic friend what the issues are between you, they either rise to that and say, do you know what? I have been not helpful to you in this way. And I'm going to look at that as that's to do with me. That's not to do with you. And I'm going to change it. Or they get confrontational. And if they get confrontational, then I think you just let it go. Like you just gradually stop texting them. It was probably you texting them more in the first place. You're probably that friend. Most of us are usually that friend. You know, the friend who gives the better birthday presents, who has thought about things in advance, who doesn't show up late. That's us. And people take advantage of us. And you need you need people around you who are a bonus, who are like the cherries on your cake of life, like not people who are sticking their fingers in your cream. Yes, yes, I love that. (laughs) So I'm I'm much better at that now. I was having a conversation recently with my friend Dolly Alderton and she was talking about Brené Brown, who... I love her! I noticed that she liked one of your Instagram posts. Yes. I was like, oh my God. When, okay, I'm not going to say we're friends. Oh, please say But we've definitely messaged a little Stop bit. Stop it. I met her. So when I was doing this show on Broadway... I, sorry to go on a tangent. No, please. I was doing this show on Broadway with Hugh Jackman and it was called The River and it was by Jez Butterworth and it was all about memory and what you remember as real memory and, and not memory and vulnerability and she came to talk to us and there were only three of us in the cast and she came in to talk to us and I got the biggest crush on her and she just was sat there talking about vulnerability and people and I learned so much and she's a big fan of the good fight so yeah we have this like slightly online slight friendship I'm sure she wouldn't mind if I said that no she probably has a crush on you she's probably doing a podcast (laughs) somewhere else in an alternate universe being like (laughs) I'm almost friends with Chris Johnson she says amazing things doesn't she she does toxic friendship yeah and she said this thing recently in a podcast about how she's done lots of research into hyper compassionate people so monks people like that who've spent their entire lives devoted to being compassionate to others And she was really interested in the one thing that connected all these disparate groups of people. And she found out that it was boundaries, having a hyper aware sense of boundaries and what you knew you would do and the extents that you would go to and what you wouldn't and the people that you would do it for. Yeah. And it made me feel so much better because I realised then that I can only be a really good friend and a great partner to the people that I really value and cherish if I put those boundaries in place for the others who are toxic yes. and draining. Yeah. And your life, honestly, when you do it, you feel like a massive weight. You think you're going to feel guilty. But when you do it, it feels so good. I'm 34 now. I have an amazing husband who's like my best friend. I have a one-year-old. I don't have time for somebody who, like, drags me down. You know, I, I want to eat chocolate croissants and go have fun. Like, I don't have time for people who only want to tell me the bad things. And she talks, because Brene talks about that too. She talks about people who, it's a pretend compassion, but really they're wanting to just drag you into their negativity. And you've got to be careful of those ones too, because they take what you have. Yeah. And they kind of make it into something for them, which is really unhealthy. But one of my favourite things that she says, sorry to make this a Brene podcast, but one of my favourite <clears> things <throat> that she says that. is about our obsession with being busy to the point of breaking down, being programmed to think that's something to be proud of. 
how are you? I'm just so exhausted. I've got so much on. I'm just kind of, I'm literally just holding it together and, and being like, brackets, very successful. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. that, and breaking that and going, that's not a good thing. Sometimes that's being so busy that you can't think straight. It's the feeling of being empty is giving me good feelings. Yes. Like, okay, I've been empty for a bit longer and empty for a bit longer. And I thought that was really interesting because I feel like I do that a lot. Yeah. And actually the most quote unquote successful thing you can do is to put those boundaries in place in your own diary and to choose to spend the time doing what you want to do and what you get most from and what's most fulfilling for other people. Yeah. And, and not worrying so much about what's going on over there. Like you, you spend a lot of time going, okay, this is all fine. But like, when's the bit when I become more successful by doing what she's doing and what she's doing and when I was doing Josephine I'm gonna name drop now but Meryl Streep came to see it stop Meza and I you know again like Brene not I wouldn't I don't (laughs) want to say I'm her friend but she definitely knows who I am and we've had a few conversations and she's so amazing and she told me this amazing thing which was about the fact that each of us is the center of our own universe And that by going, well, what's next? What's next? Maybe I should be over there. Like, what's next for me? What's next is what's happening right now where you are in this moment. And everyone else is at the centre of there. So there's no point looking. It's like your universe will just keep moving the way it moves. You're not going to be moving from where you are and jumping into somebody else's. I love that. It ties in with something else that I've been thinking, that there is no such thing as a future you. There is your projected notion of what you might be. But when you get there, in fact, every single time I've got there, I've got sort of five years hence, I've never been the person I thought I was going to be. Right. Which makes you think about the fact that there's a Hollywood actor somewhere who's an Oscar winner sitting in a trailer thinking what we're thinking. There's no, like oh, I'm there now. You don't suddenly wake up and go, oh, because people are always now bumping in, people bumping into me I haven't seen in years going, well, you you did all right, didn't you? Like, I'm dying. Like, well, you did all right. Well, you made it, didn't you? Right place, right time. People like to say that. People who aren't actors love to say, right place, right time, and you've got to have a bit of luck, haven't you? That's so annoying because it so diminishes the hard work and talent you've put in to get there. If you're not an actor, don't say that to an actor. It's so annoying. And you realise that there's no, I've made it now. And so instead of keeping that feeling going in yourself, why not kind of be where you are and enjoy that that it's not the five years before or the five years before that. Oh, gosh, I just want to, I really want to talk, do a whole series with I you. I know. We need my podcast co-host forevermore. <laughs> we do have one more failure, which is also, it sort of ties into so much of what we've been talking about because your final failure is your failure to quote unquote, have it all. So that idea that you had got somewhere, you'd got, you ticked all the boxes. Tell us what that's about because it's connected to the birth of your son. Okay, so there I was in New York doing my thing on the good fight there with my husband, Sean, who's literally, after Henry the dog, he won't mind me saying, second best thing that ever happened to me. Because he's my best buddy. Like, I'd never been with a person who made me feel as great in myself as Sean does. He's also super hot. But that aside... I've seen the photo. <coughs> I had realised, you've known him for years. Yeah. He's like a childhood friend. Because yeah. I thought when I read Sean, tech developer, I was like, oh, he's clearly like some like Silicon Valley startup. Yeah. And he'll probably get mad at me because I always get the name of his job wrong. Like if I say tech something or tech something else, he gets upset. So, And he'll listen to this. So he comes up with brilliant ideas for tech products and he puts teams of people together to make it. He doesn't make the things. 
but babe, I can't remember what the name of the thing is that you do. All I know is he can open PDFs anytime I want and he can always show me like if something's broken, where to find it on my phone. Can he do an Excel spreadsheet? He can do all that stuff. Oh my gosh. He I mean, just what he, a hero. he knows things that I just can't even he's amazing. But yeah, he we're he's my best friend. I feel boring when I when he's not there. I hope he feels boring when I'm not around. So we got pregnant. And I was, whatever, 33, and I'm an actor. So you're at that bit where you're like, you, you can't... I didn't even know if I wanted kids when I first got together with Sean and we got married because I'd spent a lot of my life bringing up kids. And I love kids, but I didn't know if I wanted one. And then I was like, oh, he's just too cool not to replicate. So we ought to try. But just to make you aware, even if you've been on the pill for 15 years, when you come off of it, be so careful. Because we tried once between shows in the dressing room at the National and we got pregnant straight away. Wait, the National Theatre? Yeah. I know. So the baby. Is this what you were doing common? Yeah. Oh, how did I do that? I know. <laughs> there you go. So it could happen that quick. And of course, my son then didn't stand a chance because, like, his whole life was going to be showbiz. He just had no choice. Bless him. So we got pregnant and it was all very quick and they wrote it into the show. Which is amazing. You had a, a birth scene where you yes. gave birth on the show I and gave, it was a week before I gave song. birth on the show and it was a week before having him and all of that experience, like being able to be pregnant as the character and work with the writers and the producers and everyone was super helpful. But I was away in New York while being pregnant and I'm somebody, as you know, who just is like, I'm fine, don't worry about it, I don't need a chair. That that was me. I don't need a chair or a snack. Let's just go for the 15th take. Like, because you've been on your feet for 14 hours. I'm fine, put the heels back on. Like, because without realising it, I'd also been programmed with this whole kind of, don't moan. You're lucky you're pregnant. You know, it's some people can't have children. You're lucky you've got this healthy baby. You've got a good job. You have a happy relationship. And so you better just make this work. And of course, in the meantime, you're completely exhausted and panicking about whether this thing will come out of your vagina or not. It's like, there's no two ways about it. It's not going to come out your mouth. Anybody that says they're not worried about that and worried about whether they can parent is just a liar. But of course, we're living in a time with this complete obsession with many people, women, telling other women how bad they are at being mothers, just by virtue of showing them a photo on Instagram. Look at how perfectly I'm being pregnant. Look at how perfectly I'm existing. So subconsciously, even if I don't really even look at that stuff, but subconsciously, I was worrying already about whether I was doing it all right, even though I tried to do it all right. And a really straightforward birth super lucky I had him in New York so you get a plethora of drugs offered to you darling it's so great and I did hypnobirthing and I tried to learn what I could and meditate and do all that stuff but I went back to work when he was four months old and I had him a week after we wrapped and I'd been in the gym till a week before I had him because I was trying to get ahead of myself knowing what gap I had to before I went back to work I was exhausted And I was trying to keep a million balls in the air. And then on top of that, when you're a person who makes things and you have a baby, you now realise it's just tiredness. But you sit down and try to do something in those first few weeks and your brain is just like, "Uh -uh, sorry, this door doesn't exist in your creative mind anymore. And you have this horrible panic that maybe it's gone. Like, did it come out with the placenta? Like, my talent is gone and I'm not the same person And it takes a while for all of that to kind of come back together and you realise you're a newer, stronger, more fearless person with better ideas. 
but when you're in it, it's kind of scary. I'm not good at having it all. I am not an Instagram mum. Like, I'm not good. If he does something cute, you know, I'll post it. If he does something embarrassing or he shits on me, I'll talk about it. But, like, I'm a firm believer that that's a lie. It is just a lie that we should stop perpetuating because it's unhelpful. Sometimes you have to give them frozen chips so that you can spend time with them. And sometimes you'll cook dinner from scratch because you can't spend time with them. And doing one or the other is fine. But as Christine said to me when I was pregnant and I said, you know, have you got any advice when I come back to work? And I've had Max and and she said um, she has two daughters and she had them when she was doing the TV show Sybil. And she was flying to L.A. from Connecticut, working there all week and then flying back and being mum all weekend and then flying back on the Monday to make a living. And she said, I had horrible guilt and I had people helping me bring them up, but I wanted them in Connecticut, not in LA, so they would have a proper existence and a good upbringing. And she said to me, when you leave the house in the morning, it will be better for you to say to yourself, I do not have children. Now I'm Kush, the actress. Come to work and do your best work. And when you get home, shut the door and you go, now I'm mum. I'm going to be the best mum. I'm not checking my phone and I'm not doing this and not doing that for these two hours and doing this and when you break it up like that and go everything costs something as long as you make peace with what it costs I took a job this summer I did a movie in Norway and Sweden which I only took because I said I have to bring the baby and Sean with me and if they'd said no I wouldn't have taken the job because that's too long to be away from Max I would have been upset to lose the movie but that's what it's going to cost me if I want to spend time with Max and I've been here filming in Scotland and I brought them with me up there and they were having a great time up there in Scotland and there'll be other things as he gets older that I'll have to let go if I don't want to be like I feel really you can't take the job and then go I feel really guilty I'm not seeing him well don't take the job or you say I'm gonna take this job and mummy's gonna explain to you this is mummy's job this is what she really loves to do and when she does this it makes her really happy so that when she's here with you she's a really happy mummy She's a really good mummy and that's why I'm taking this job. I'm still, he's one, so I'm very much at the beginning of this process and I'm sure people, you know, out there would be able to give me better advice. But I found in this first year that the quicker I was able to let that lie go, the happier I was as a person. Was there a bit of you before you had Max where you were anxious because of your previous experiences that we chatted about? of being the second eldest child and having to parent your siblings? Like, were you worried about the kind of parent you would be given that you had a specific, yeah? Yeah, I just thought I'd mess him up. I really like being around children. I'm full of play. Like, I want to do all the imaginative stuff and I want to build the castles and I want to be the dragon and I do the funny voices and I love being around kids. I was like, (laughs) but my parents mess me up. So how do I know how to parent? Like, what do I know about the right kind of emotional structure or what a child should hear and what a child shouldn't? But I guess you just realise, don't you? You're just like, I wouldn't say that in front of my child. I wouldn't have that kind of argument in front of my child. And you just make different decisions. A whole bunch of other new mistakes as well. I mean, you know, poor kid. But you just do things differently because you, you know what you would have liked. And do you think you'll have more children? Don't think so. This is the bit in the conversation where, not you, but this is the bit where if I was at lunch, people go, 
you'll change your mind. <laughs> oh, he's only one. You'll change your mind. I won't change my mind because, again, I brought up so many children. And it's two things, actually. One, it's that I admire anybody who can have more than one child. Do I feel sorry for him not having siblings? No, because at the moment he has something like seven cousins all born in the same two years of him. So he's got lots of people to fight with. He also can go to school and make friends. If his worst gripe in life is going to be that I didn't give him a sibling, then he'll be one spoiled child who needs to go and get talk to somebody because I don't think that's, you know, fair. But two, I think the bigger question is, there's a lot of people out there start having their second child while their first child is still quite young in a kind of effort to, I guess, get it out of the way. As some people would describe it, get it out of the way as if it just slides out. It really doesn't. But I think there's a question here about if you love your vocation like I do, I love my job so much and I have so many ideas and plans and so many things I want to do. Is it fair to assume that you can just shrink yourself into boxes and be what a child and a person needs completely if the things that you're doing for yourself and your dreams and your aspirations is going to get bigger and bigger? Or is it more honest to say, what can I cope with? I know in myself, now having got to know myself better, what I can cope with is giving all that I can to Max and doing all that I can in my job, but I can't do a whole nother Max and that. If I do do a whole nother Max, what it will cost me is some of what I want to do. And at least right now, I have no interest in shrinking what I want to do, which may make me sound selfish, but I think it's just honest. And I think not enough people are honest about what they can do. I totally agree with you. And thank you for being honest. And you know what that sounds like? Not selfish, boundaried. Oh, there you go. It all comes back to Brené Brown. Kush Jumbo, I have loved talking to you. I interviewed you seven years ago. Can we do this again in another seven years? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's see how fat we both are by then. <laughs> we just eat more cake, have more tea. It'd be really lovely. Yeah, Kush came here with cakes from Gales. And I they are so delicious. <laughs> you can come back anytime. Kush Jumbo, thank you so, so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.